Turn with me in your Bible, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, as we continue our study of this great chapter in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 13, it's found on page 1220 of the Bible that you'll find underneath your chair, if you don't have a Bible of your own. And I'll read the first eight verses, and we're going to look at just one phrase in this passage, 1 Corinthians 13. Hear the word of God. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have, And if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things. Believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we ask you now, as you inspired Paul to write these words 2,000 years ago, that you will stir in our hearts an understanding that applies in 2018 and in our future. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you will use this passage to form us into the image of Christ, that we might resemble him more, love him more, serve him more, and talk about him more. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. For the past several weeks, we've been studying this chapter, 1 Corinthians 13 working our way through it phrase by phrase. As you probably know, it's called the love chapter because the whole thing is about Christian love. And if there's one phrase that I would dare say is particularly relevant to the times in which we live in America, it is this one in the end of verse 4, the beginning of verse 5. Love is not arrogant or rude. Now, if we had time, we would talk about rudeness. I'm sure there are some of you that would love to make sure that one of your family members hears a sermon about rudeness this morning. But we don't have time for both arrogance and rudeness. I think we all agree that rudeness is a problem, though, in our culture today. And I think that'll be a topic for another Sunday. But instead, the bigger problem, and as I'm going to say later, the root problem that contributes to rudeness is actually arrogance. We're going to talk about arrogance today. You know, every day in our culture, in the news, on social media, you see examples of arrogance and pride. Some of the most famous people in the world, including political leaders on both the left and the right, nobody's immune, are quite honestly very arrogant. Name-calling. Personal attacks, mudslinging, insults, 
They fill the airwaves and public discourse today. But hold on. Is the problem with arrogance just out there? Could it be that one of the symptoms of our own arrogance is that we think it's out there instead of in here? Every year, my family and I take a summer vacation. It's usually in the middle of July. And so it falls almost always on our grandson Eben's birthday. Eben is 13, but a few years ago, when we were on our family vacation at the beach, we celebrated his birthday, as we do every year. And what we do, one of the traditions that we have in our family is that on someone's birthday, we go around the dinner table and everybody seated around the table, says something they like about that person whose birthday we're celebrating. And so we all did that for Eben and uh, went around. Everybody said what they like about Eben. He was just beaming. He was just enjoying it and getting into it. And then when everybody had had a chance, it came back to Eben again. And he said, do it again, do it again. <laughs> See, we, we are like Eben. All of us, we have that tendency. We want to hear things about ourselves. We want to be affirmed. And that's not all bad. That is kind of how we're wired. We do need that. There's a certain amount of pride that's built into every human being. There is such a thing, in fact, as healthy or holy pride. Holy pride is what you feel about your kids or your grandchildren. It's what you feel about your college football team, maybe. Your, hopefully your church, your company, yourself. When you do something well, you should be proud of yourself. But listen, the Bible never speaks of pride in that positive sense. It always speaks of unholy pride when it uses the word pride or arrogance. It talks about the kind of pride that makes you self-absorbed, narcissistic, egotistical. See, that kind of pride is different from the healthy and holy type. That kind of pride is hubristic pride. It's destructive of both yourself and of other people. And that's the kind of pride we're talking about today. And that is addressed here in 1 Corinthians 13. And I'm going to use the words pride and arrogance somewhat interchangeably. I think they're close in meaning to each other. G.K. Chesterton said one time, If I had only one sermon to preach, it would be a sermon against pride. Pride is a poison, he says, so very poisonous that it not only poisons the virtues... It even poisons the other vices. So it behooves us today to think about and to pray about and to fight against and to slay, as we said in one of our songs this morning, the sin of arrogance. I want to do say three things about it. First, arrogance defined and then arrogance described and finally arrogance defeated. So let's dive into arrogance defined. Paul uses the word for arrogance in verse 4, a word that means puffed up, literally puffed up. In fact, some of the older versions, King James Version, if you're familiar with that, says charity is not puffed up. It's a figurative expression, obviously. It's talking about someone with an inflated ego, an inflated view of oneself. So the words puffed up are sort of appropriate for that. You may have heard some modern day expressions that are close to that. She puts on airs, you might say. 
or he has the big head. See, they all trace their roots back to this same idea of being puffed up. We're talking about hubris here. Someone who is arrogant, proud, conceited, and haughty. The word translated puffed up is in the New Testament seven times. And all but once, it's here in the book of 1 Corinthians. Examples. Don't be puffed up, says Paul in chapter 4, verse 6. In favor of one against another. Knowledge, he says in chapter 8, verse 1, puffs up, but love builds up. Now, why do you suppose Paul uses this phrase puffed up so many times in the book of 1 Corinthians? Well, you might know that the Corinthian Christians struggled with pride. In chapters 1 and 3, Paul says that there was jealousy and division and a spirit of competition in Corinth, where one Christian was saying, I, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. I follow Peter. And some in their hyper-spirituality said, oh, I follow Jesus. And so there was this party spirit in the church in Corinth. In chapter 5, Paul mentions sexual immorality and incest. And he says there that the believers were boasting about those things rather than grieving over them and being concerned about them. In chapter 6, Paul says that believers were taking each other to court. In chapter uh, 8, he says that some of the stronger believers were taking advantage of their Christian liberty and causing weaker believers to stumble. In chapter 11, he says people were getting drunk at the Lord's table and being inconsiderate of each other. In chapters 12 and 14, he says that the Corinthians were exalting certain spiritual gifts and putting down or treating other gifts with contempt. Now do you get it? It's no wonder that Paul felt the need to spend a whole chapter on love. And in this verse 4, he says, love is not puffed up. It's not arrogant. So there's arrogance defined. It's the exaltation or the inflation of the self. But I want to say three more things about the definition of arrogance here. First of all, arrogance is an easy sin to hide. Yesterday, we concluded our officers retreat. Our elders and deacons and pastors were together in the evening on Friday and half of the day, half of the day yesterday, and I had to go get lunch afterwards. Uh, so I went over to Chipotle over there on University Boulevard, one of my favorite places to eat, next to Chick-fil-A, of course. Um, but it was, it was uh, right after the retreat. And so I was feeling my holiest. And I was standing in line, and it was a long line, as often happens over at Chipotle, And I was just looking around at the other people in line. And I was feeling so superior. I took some of those people to the court of Mike Osborne and pronounced them guilty and sentenced to suffer forever. All in my mind. I looked nice, proper, well-dressed and doing all the right things, saying all the right things on the outside, very courteous. But on the inside was this war with pride that I'm embarrassed to admit. On the inside, 
I was hateful. I was judgmental. I was self-righteous. All of which are first cousins to arrogance. And this despite the fact that I'd spent a whole week studying about arrogance in the Bible. And preparing a sermon about it. And I thought as I was becoming a little bit convicted about my pride, I thought of what Jesus said in Matthew 23 about this problem. He was speaking to the scribes and Pharisees in Matthew 23, and he said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you're like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. You are outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. See, that's why I said earlier, it's not out there. It's right in here. Arrogance and pride are easy sins to hide from other people. But not from God. Second thing I want to say about it is that arrogance is an extremely serious sin. This is one of the things I found as I studied it in the Bible this past week. God says things about arrogance that he doesn't say. About anything else. For example, listen to this in James 4, verse 6. It says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Sam Storms is a pastor in Oklahoma City, and here's what he had to say about that verse in James. He says, James, the apostle, the apostle James, doesn't say that God simply ignores the proud. Or avoids them or keeps his distance from them. No, he resists them. He works in open opposition to them. He wages war against them and thwarts them. Pride provokes God to wrath and indignation. It irritates him, agitates him, and displeases him beyond words. Think about some of the other Bible verses that God says about pride and arrogance. It says in Proverbs 8 verse 13, Pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech, I hate. God doesn't say that he hates many things. But he hates those things. In Proverbs 16, 5, he says, Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured he will not go unpunished. It says in Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before destruction. You've probably heard that verse. And a haughty spirit before a fall. Proverbs 26, 12 says, do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. And finally, in Psalm 138, it says, for though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. Just a few things that God says in the Bible about this sin of arrogance that distance it from so many other things. God has a turning of his stomach against human pride. Arrogance, you know, was the first sin. The first sin ever in the universe. Before you and I were created, before anything was created, there were angels and Satan was one of them. Satan was an angel created by God for the glory and praise of God. But he, what, grew puffed up. He got proud of his angelic status and wanted more fame and more glory. He didn't want to be an angel in the service of God anymore. He wanted to be God. 
So God threw Satan out of heaven. He came to earth and he came to tempt Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden to become puffed up like him. What did he say to Eve? Here, Eve, look. Look at this. Taste this fruit. You will not surely die. For God knows he's hiding it from you. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. And ever since that moment, human beings have desired the forbidden fruit of control and superiority to exalt themselves instead of exalting God and loving their neighbor. Arrogance is a serious sin because it's the belief that we can be creator and Lord of our own universe. Arrogance is the violation of the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. When we're arrogant, you see... We think that we can call the shots. We can be in control. We can do what we want to do. We can think what we want to think and say whatever we want to think, uh, say. To heck with what God says we should do and think and say. Take just one example, and that would be pornography. The problem with porn is not really that people are lonely, although that certainly contributes to it. The problem with porn is not that we have easy access to the Internet and there are wicked people who are anxious to profit off of it. The problem with porn is arrogance. The belief that we are on the throne and we're entitled to do whatever we want. And the same can be said of all the other things that we're tempted to do contrary to the will of God. Have you ever heard that poem, Invictus? Uh, You probably have heard the last couple of lines. It's written by William Ernest Henley. Here's the last verse of the poem Invictus. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. You know, those were the final words of Timothy McVeigh. Before he was executed by lethal injection on June 11, 2001 for the bombing of the federal building in Oklahoma City. He wrote that last verse of Henley's poem as his final words to the world. I hope that he discovered in his last few breaths that God is the master of this world and the captain of our souls. Because arrogance is a serious sin. And the third thing I want to say about it, as we think about the definition of arrogance, it's a root sin. Arrogance is a root sin. T.S. Eliot said that most of the trouble in the world is caused by people wanting to be important. He was saying pretty much what the Bible teaches. Look at these verses from Proverbs chapter 6 and see if you want to agree that arrogance functions like a root or core sin. It says that there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to Him. Look at the first one, haughty eyes. See, that's just another expression for arrogance and pride. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness that breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. But it all begins with haughty eyes. The spirit of pride 
that says, I'm better than you. I know more than you. I'm prettier than you. I'm richer, stronger, smarter, faster, better informed, cleaner, more experienced, more qualified, more lovable. You fill in the blank. Now, wait, is it wrong to think well of yourself? Does humility mean that you run yourself down and criticize yourself and deny your gifting and fade into the background and avoid putting yourself out there for fear that you'll look prideful? No, a thousand times no. That is not what humility means. You have gifts that need to be celebrated and expressed without apology. Every Christian is a beloved child of God and should stand up tall and strong. God is not honored by the kind of timidity and false humility that is really a different form of pride. And we get those things mixed up a lot of times within the Christian camp. We think humility means, oh, I've got to be mousy. I've got to quiet my opinion. I've got to stand back. I've got to let things happen. No, passivity is not humility. But haughty eyes, that's the outward manifestation of an inward haughtiness, a feeling of superiority and judgment over other people. That's clearly sinful. That's arrogance. And when you are haughty, see, it launches a roller coaster of these other sins that are mentioned there in that passage. You justify lying. You, you justify abusing people verbally, emotionally, even physically. It will not bother you when you sin because you figure you're entitled. You will criticize people when you're an arrogant person. You will gossip about them and slander them, causing division in the body of Christ. And it all starts with pride and arrogance. You have an inflated, you're puffed up, an inflated view of yourself, your needs, your rights... And that's what Paul is saying love is not. Now that we've defined it, let me describe it. As though you need more conviction. But I I think we've got to do this. I can think of at least ten signs or symptoms. As I've studied the scriptures this week about pride and arrogance, I've come up with at least ten signs or symptoms of an arrogant heart. And so I'm just going to fly through these. They speak of themselves. They don't really need my comment. But uh, maybe I can make these available on Facebook if you can't write them down fast enough. But first, I've got ten. Self-reliance. Self-reliance instead of depending on God. And a manifestation of that would be prayerlessness. A lack of prayer, lack of relying upon God is a symptom of an arrogant heart. Number two, the love of attention. I need you to hear my voice. I need to be noticed. I need to be the center of attention. Number three, a lack of empathy for other people. Number four, a habit of boasting. Now this is sort of an obvious one. A habit of boasting about your knowledge, abilities, and achievements would be a sign of of arrogance. Number five, a tendency to chafe. You know what that means? To be dis to be uncomfortable, to step away. A tendency to chafe and make excuses when you're rebuked, admonished, or corrected. Number six, an unwillingness to submit to godly leadership would be an evidence of 
of arrogance. When someone is over you and he or she is leading in a godly way and you're refusing, it's your boss, it's your elder, it's your leader in some ministry and you're refusing to follow when it's godly, that's a sign of pride. Number seven, prejudice. Prejudice in all its forms. Religious, racial, ethnic, socioeconomic. Number eight, insistence on being in control. Another word for that would be inflexibility. Inflexibility. Number nine, failing to give credit where credit is due. And the flip side of that would be taking credit for things others have done. You know, when you refuse to thank people, when you refuse to express appreciation and celebrate the achievements and the and the positive contributions that others are making. And finally, number 10, an unwillingness to admit your mistakes. An unwillingness to admit your mistakes. Now, let's ponder this list. And you may think of others, but these are ones that were convicting to me this week. Ponder this and think about this. What Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 13 is that love is not those things. See, you and I, if if I were to ask you what's the opposite of love, what would you say? Our automatic reply is hate. But that's not what Paul says here. Paul says that the opposite of love is arrogance. The love of attention, trying to always be in control. That's the opposite of love. The opposite of love is racism. It's impatience with people instead of empathy. I'm guilty of all of these things. I often fail to love. What can I say? I like attention, I like being in control. There are people I look down on. And that's the opposite of love, says Paul. I'm arrogant, okay? But it's not the end of the story. And it's not the end of the story for you either. I suspect that there's a good deal of conviction going on in the room this morning. As you think about these things and you start thinking, Oh, yeah, that's me, that's me, that's me. Mike, you've nailed me to the wall. Well, here's the good news. The good news is it's not the end of the story. You and I can, even though we admit to our pride, can live with joy and in peace instead of despair. Why? Because of the gospel, that's why. See, the Bible says that the sin of pride, like all of the other sins that separate us from God, has been defeated by the cross. See, arrogance defeated is what we end on today. Sin like these have been defeated at the cross. Jesus Christ is the epitome of 1 Corinthians 13. He is patient and kind. Jesus does not envy or boast. He is not arrogant or rude. See, you can almost put Jesus, the name of Jesus, in every place in this chapter where the word love is used. Jesus is the opposite of arrogance and pride. When he came to this earth... He did not insist on his own way. He was not irritable or resentful. Instead, 
Jesus came as the second Adam, the suffering servant, the bleeding sacrifice, the lamb who was slain, the one who did for us what you and I could never do for ourselves. He lived the life we were supposed to live. He died the death we deserve to die. And he rose again in victory over sin and over shame, leaving our sin in the tomb behind him. Earlier, I quoted G.K. Chesterton. Remember he said that pride is the poison that poisons both virtues and vices? Well, grace is the antidote to the poison of pride. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved arrogant wretches like you and like me. We once were lost, but now we've been found. We were blind, but now we see. See, sin was beaten at the cross. It no longer defines you. You have a new identity. So now, in the strength of the Holy Spirit, as an adopted child of God who's been regenerated and given a new name and a new heart and a new nature, we can go fight the sin of arrogance. Yes, that old nature wants to pull us back toward pride and self-trust and control and prejudice and all those other things that I mentioned, but you can turn from arrogance and learn humility as Jesus Christ is formed More and more in you. How, you might ask. Well, here's some things to think about. To talk about with your family and friends and in your life group this week. I hope you'll do that. Think about such things as these. What if, in order to learn humility, what if you simply prayed to the Holy Spirit to make you more and more of a humble person? Have you prayed that prayer before? Why not begin to pray, God, make me humble? Now, be aware. (laughs) He has ways of doing that. What if the next time you have a decision to make, instead of just acting impulsively on your own without even thinking about what God might have to say, you took more time to pray and read the Bible and seek the counsel of others in the body of Christ? What if you were intentional about gratitude? And started trying to think of what you're thankful for. And begin to thank God more often for things like your health and your family, your friends, your church, your job, your money, and so on. What if, now this one's hard. What if you were more careful about parading your abilities and experiences and privileges in front of other people? And I'm talking about social media. Facebook, Instagram, so on and so forth. You know, it's been well documented. There's been research made on this. That with this growing culture of posting things that we've done, experienced, awards we've gotten, how great our kids are, and guilty, how great our grandchildren are. The more we do that, the more it is creating a culture of shame. Because when you're really honest and you read about all these things, you instantly feel so inferior to everybody. Why not we here at UPC begin to just pull that back a bit and tame our natural instinct to want to go out there with all of our great accomplishments? It could be actually a biblical thing to do. (laughs) Proverbs 25, 27 says, It is not good to eat much honey, nor is it glorious to seek one's own glory. 
Proverbs 27, 2 says, Let another praise you and not your own mouth, a stranger and not your own lips. What if you tried to speak as well as possible about everybody you know? Ephesians 4, 29 says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building others up, that it may give grace to those who hear. What if... You tried to be more flexible instead of being insistent that things be done your way. Jonathan Edwards called that a yielding spirit. Why not ask God, give me a yielding spirit, O Lord? You know, Jesus himself said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak too. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. See, Jesus was talking about a yielding spirit in being flexible instead of inflexible. And finally, what if you practiced the art of confession more often? The other day, somebody called me on the phone and he said, Mike, I have an apology to make. I need, I owe you an apology. And I said, okay, what? I don't know what. And he said, the other day when you and I were talking, I said some things that I felt were probably hurtful to you. And I just want you to know how badly I've been feeling about that. And if it hurt you in the least, I'm so very sorry. I was out of line. And I I was happy to hear and to receive an honest confession. It was a blessing to me. And hopefully it was a blessing to him when I was able to say, You know, I wasn't even aware of that, but I'm going to say I forgive you. Go in peace. The art of confession is something that we should be best at. Because we've been given perfect righteousness that can never be decreased by our mistakes. So who should be honest but us believers? Um. Jonathan Edwards, again, to quote him, said, It is pride, here it is on the screen, It is pride that makes men reluctant to confess their fault when they have fallen into one and makes them think that to be their shame, which is in truth their highest honor. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying it's actually honorable. It's an honorable thing to do to confess one's faults. We usually think the opposite of that. But here's a great promise. Would you read this with me from Proverbs 28? Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but who he confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. God is saying, be honest, share, tell, confess, admit in your life group. What would it look like if husbands and wives were more honest in confessing their faults to each other? What would it look like in our life groups if we were able to come to life group with the liberty and freedom to say, I've had a lousy week. I did this and did that. And I just need to ask somebody to share the gospel with me tonight. It would radically change the way we do church. Let's practice the art of confession. So what have we seen today? We've seen that arrogance is a terrible, terrible poison. God hates it. But he has provided the antidote The grace of the gospel is the antidote for pride and arrogance. So drink it down. Drink it down.
drink down the grace of God. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, I pray today that you will form Christ in us more and more. That you'll help us to grow more like Jesus, more humble, more loving, more empathic, more prayerful, more patient, more flexible, more honest about our pride. Lord, make us more in sync with the good news that we have a new identity so we can come forth and be honest. We don't have to parade our righteousness because we have a righteousness that will never perish, spoil, or fade. Remind us, Father, when we're tempted to be prideful, to rest in the righteousness of Christ and to love others as He has loved us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.